This message is provided by Bridgeway Community Church. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, if you're new or visiting with us, we have been studying the great little book of Revelation. And that is a, a challenging book, and our hope is that we can take maybe a more confusing part of your Bible and begin to bring it to light. That's my hope in this series. If you're new or visiting with us, uh, this is part three in our series on the book of Revelation. And today, we're going to be in Revelation chapter three. If you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to turn there with us. Uh, the words will all be on the screen as well. And as you're looking at me and we're making this transition from beautiful babies and moms and families on the stage, you're probably wondering what I was wondering this week, which is, it's kind of odd, right? I mean, it's kind of odd, I'll be the first to admit, on Mother's Day to preach out of the book of Revelation. I've kind of never done that before. And when I started kind of feeling the series out and praying and seeking God months ago, I knew that that was going to fall on this day. And I remember kind of something in my quiet time like, oh, dear Lord, I don't want to have to preach on the beast coming out of the sea or the Antichrist on Mother's Day. Like, like Lord, don't, don't make me do that. And kind of as the weeks have gone on, I've actually started to sense that this message today is actually a really appropriate message for Mother's Day. And I'm going to try to connect the dots for you today. And I'll start with this. I'll start with another nod to all the moms that are here today, because I find that moms have this exceptional ability to know how their kids are doing. Kind of agree with me that moms sort of like have that ability. They know how their kids are doing. They know when their kids are doing really well, and they know when their kids aren't doing very well. They know when their kids are happy. They know when they're sad. They know even when their kids have like really good relationships, and maybe at times when those relationships are struggling. Dads, on the other hand, are a little more limited. Would you agree with me? Dads tend to ask questions like, are you broken? Are you leaking? Will duct tape fix this? Like, that's kind of our level of insight. Moms are sort of next level care. Moms kind of know how their child is doing physically and emotionally and spiritually. And the truth is, you can't fool Mom, you might find this hard to believe, but when I was a kid, I actually didn't like going to school, and I didn't like going to church. And I had this thing where I would actually try to fool my mom into thinking and believing I was sick. I would get up way early, like three in the morning, and I would put on like two pairs of sweatpants and three sweatshirts, and I would get underneath my blankets like a sweat lodge, trying to like induce a fever. And then my mom would wake up, and I would come up in my pajamas, and she would look at me, and she didn't even need a thermometer. My mom could just put the back of her hand on my forehead and say, 98.6, you're fine. You're going to school. You're going to church. And the big idea today in the book of Revelation is God knows. God knows you, and he knows especially how you're doing. He knows how you're feeling. And you kind of can't fool him either. In fact, maybe the way to think about this morning is God kind of knows your temperature. And in this case, temperature is actually a good thing. Like a really good thing to have a high temperature, a high appetite and capacity for God. The way in which the book of Revelation lays out is it starts out with these seven letters, a letter written to each of these seven churches in the region. And they're all sort of a temperature check, kind of weighing in on the churches and asking, how's this church doing? And my hope is that it would give not only you an opportunity 
to sort of check your temperature, but give us as a community, Bridgeway, a chance to sort of check our temperature. So let me just ask you this morning, what's your spiritual temperature? And again, in this case, a high temperature would be a good thing. So maybe just at the beginning of this message, kind of just take an assessment of yourself. You know, where are you at in your faith right now? Are you kind of like right at the top of that thermometer, red, hot, faith towards Jesus? Or maybe it's back down a little bit. Maybe, maybe you were red hot, and now it's kind, of, it's kind of slipped a little bit. Or if you're honest, it's slipped a long ways, and you're somewhere down in that medium temperature. Or maybe if you're honest, maybe a good thing to be honest in church is just to say, you know what, I'm, I'm a little cool, or I'm even a little cold in my spiritual faith right now. This is an opportunity this morning in this message to sort of check your temperature. Now, we've been going through this book of Revelation, and I've invited you to do what I find most Christians haven't done, which is to actually read the book of Revelation. Try to make it really simple. Just take one chapter a day. Um, you likely, by kind of where we're at in the series, you probably, if you've been following that, you might have already read through the whole book. Uh, my urging to you would be go back and just keep that process going, one chapter a day. We learned in the first week of this message that when you read the book of Revelation, Jesus says, you'll be blessed. And the reason you're blessed is that when you read it, it's the revelation, the revealing of who Jesus is. Um, kind of can frustrate me. Uh, the book is called Revelation, but a lot of times people call this the book of revelations. They'll add an S to the end of it. And the reason you don't do that is because there's only one revelation. It's the revelation of the one true Jesus Christ. And you're getting an image of him. You might be getting an image of Jesus that is different from what you might think of Jesus. You're getting a look at who Jesus accurately is, King Jesus. And he's been revealing himself to uh, a pastor by the name of John. He's one of Jesus' original disciples. And he's not only an old friend of Jesus, but he's an old man. John at this point in his life is 80, 85 years old. He, he should be thinking about retirement, kicking back on a beach, maybe having one of those drinks with an umbrella in it, and instead John is facing persecution. Um, he was boiled alive in oil, and when that didn't kill him, the emperor Domitian exiled him to the island off the coast of Turkey called Patmos. In fact, this map kind of gives you an idea of where things sort of laid out. The church in that day was sort of located mostly in western Turkey, Jerusalem to the south, and a little bit making its way into uh, Rome. But here's John, Pastor John, Jesus' old friend. He's out on this little island, this dot in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and he's looking out over the land. And he is probably, as it is a Sunday, he's probably thinking about his church. He would have had responsibility for all seven of these churches. We looked at Ephesus in the first week, but there's Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia. And today we're going to look at this last church, the church in Laodicea. And um, history would tell us that in this region, about 20 years before this book was written, there was a devastating earthquake in the region. It devastated every city. In fact, um, the cities all had to call for sort of like um, crisis support, and they called on the main empire of Rome, and every city needed help except for one. The only city that wouldn't ask for help was the city of Laodicea. Reason being, they were rich. They were like ridiculously rich. They were at a crossroads. They had figured out kind of the first inroads of banking, and they had amassed for themselves a great wealth. 
Laodicea was also known as a medical center. They had developed this treatment for eyes that could, uh, by some, they believed, actually cure cataracts, or at least um, calm that remedy down. And then they were also um, known for uh, luxurious wool. They had figured out how to breed sheep in a way that produced this um, black, soft wool. Think about Laodicea for a moment. I mean, they're Wall Street. They are the John Hopkins of medical schools. And they are, at the same time, the Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. The one thing the city doesn't have is it doesn't have good water. In fact, their water came kind of from the north and east, uh, from a mountain, a snow-capped mountain region. And their water also came from the southwest, which was sort of a, a desert hot springs area. They had developed, because of their wealth, these aqueducts that would bring the water in. The problem was, by the time the water got to the city, the hot water wasn't very hot, and the cold water definitely was not cold. And Jesus is now going to give kind of an assessment, a report card of this church in this city. And we're going to read it here in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Here comes his report. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In case you didn't pick up, we'll pause here for a moment, but this is a scathing report, right? In fact, if you read through all the other letters, we looked at Ephesus a few weeks ago, and every one of those letters, there's sort of this balance in the way Jesus assesses the church. He kind of goes through a report card, and he says, hey, in this one area, you're getting an A, but maybe in this other area, it's a C, and well, here's some F marks. In the church of Laodicea, there is no commendation. There is, in fact, there is there is nothing that Jesus says is going well. He has nothing good to say about this church. And he kind of says it in an interesting way. Probably um, this letter in Revelation is probably known for two of the most uh, famous statements in the Bible. And the first one is found right here in Revelation 3, verse 16. He says, Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says, Laodicea, you know what your problem is? You're just like your city water. You're, you're not hot. You're not cold. You're kind of right in the middle, and it, it makes me sick. And I want to be really clear this morning that this is not like hot or cold, and it's a personal preference sort of thing. Uh, I, I can kind of get that. In fact, um, there are so many things that kind of fall on this list of things that are better when they're hot or maybe things that are better when they're cold. Have you ever thought about that? I was thinking this week about some things that maybe we could argue over. Um, like, I've heard it before. Some people, it's pizza, right? Like, actually, we'll just do this. Show of hands for a moment. How many of you would say, I like hot pizza? Just go ahead. Show your hands. Hot pizza. I think it's winning this morning. But I know there are some out there because you tell me that you actually prefer 
your pizza cold. Any cold pizza fans? I knew there'd be some, of course, right? You're like, I like it for breakfast the next day, you know? And so we have that. Some things may be better hot, maybe better cold. Take coffee for an example. I don't know about you. I can kind of go, I like both, right? Like, how about it? Let's just show up hands. How many of you like hot coffee? Like, maybe even like hot, burn your mouth kind of coffee. You're like really, really warm. Uh, have you checked out our new coffee in the square yet? Oh, so, so good. Check that out. Our barista, Deacon Doug, just learning and uh, fine-tuning that recipe for us. But I get it. There's hot coffee lovers. But then, okay, you had your show in your time. How about ice cold? Cold brew people. Represent, right? Like, some people like that. They like their coffee really cold. Now, play this out with me for a moment. Now, let's go back to that pizza for a moment. And let's say that pizza isn't steaming hot out of the oven anymore, and it's not ice cold out of the fridge. Let's take that pizza the way the Bible would describe it, right? It's sitting out on the counter, and it's been sitting there for days. You know what I mean? Like, where the cheese actually starts to grow into the cardboard box, right? Like, I mean, I'll stop there because it's Mother's Day, but how appetizing would that be? You'd be like, gross, I don't want that. Pitch it, right? That's good for nothing. Or how about that cup of coffee, right? It's not, it's not hot, it's not steaming, and it's not ice cold. In fact, the ice cubes have melted, diluted down that sugary, good sensation, and you would be like, yuck, this is no good. Just throw it away. That's what Jesus is saying about this church. Jesus' verdict is you are not hot or cold, and I want to spit you out of my mouth. The word spit is actually a really generous translation. In fact, some commentators would say the word could better be translated as vomit. You see what Jesus' verdict is here? He's saying, I wish you were either. My, my words are far kinder. Jesus minces no words. He says, you're lukewarm, and you're like, you're like vomit in my mouth. I want to spit you out. And I'll tell you, as I've been kind of thinking through this and preparing for weeks on this message, every time I read this, it does the same thing to me. It, it kind of just strikes this fear in me, this reminder that lukewarm faith just doesn't cut it. I mean, when it comes to your spiritual temperature, lukewarm is not enough. In fact, if you read this, he's actually kind of saying there's more hope for the person who's cold, who's never heard, who's never had an invitation to know Jesus. There's more hope for that person than the person who's maybe heard about the love and the forgiveness and the warmth of Jesus, but has chosen not to take him up in following him. He's giving this diagnosis of their spiritual condition. He, he goes on to actually move from diagnosis to the remedy. So picking back up in verse 18. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love actually what happens in this letter because it, it does turn in the direction of hope. Not in the way in which Jesus commends this church, but the way in which Jesus provides a way out of lukewarm faith. 
What he does here is he not only addresses kind of their tepid spirituality, but he actually wants for them to get better. Kind of, again, like a mom. He's looking out for the best for this church. He wants them to succeed. This would be an incredibly tough letter if these words weren't included, if there wasn't a hope and a way forward. In fact, I I believe that this is our way and our invitation to raise our spiritual temperature. It starts with the words he says, though, in verse 18, he says, I counsel you. This is really interesting because I've had people say this before, that they've, they've maybe gone and they've seen a counselor. And they were hoping to get better, but they found that when they sat down with the counselor, all they did for eight weeks is, is kind of like get to know each other. And I understand how that works. I do a fair amount of counseling, and there's establishing relationship and trying to understand the origin. And you could kind of call the, the process sort of peeling back the onion. And this is what is so encouraging about Jesus, is there is no sort of break in time for the counselor. He knows you. He knows you. He created you. And so you can trust the direction that this counselor gives you. And so he goes on to say, I counsel you to buy from me. Those two little words, from me, are so important. You remember the earthquake that hit the region? And the one church that wouldn't ask for help? I love this. Jesus is saying, your condition is way worse than any natural disaster that you've figured out how to work through. You are way past that. You can't save yourself. And then he goes on to list in here these three items, this gold that's refined by fire, this white robe, and this salve to anoint your eyes. And of course, Jesus, the master teacher here, what is he doing? He's, he's relating the physical things in their world, in their city that they know, to the things that they really need in their spiritual lives. These three things, gold and a white garment and salve for your eyes. We'll kind of break them down. You take that gold for a minute. What's gold? Well, in the Bible, gold is a status symbol. It's a a sign that you are part of royalty. And God is saying the way you can be part of royalty is when you become one of my, when I adopt you as my child, when you come into my family. And then what's a white robe? Well, white in the Bible and all throughout the book of Revelation is a clear picture of purity. It's acceptability. It's being cleansed of all sin and all unrighteousness. It's the forgiveness of God. And that salve for your eyes. In fact, I I dug so deep and I couldn't find one theologian to to kind of give me a reason to to make sense of this. And and the more I thought about it, I, I feel like that salve is not just so that you can see. Jesus wants to go beyond just sight. He wants you to have insight into how his kingdom operates. And this is the way for us to move out of our lukewarm faith. So I want to give you two ways this morning to raise your spiritual temperature. And the first is is really to grasp that salvation is by grace. I kind of said in the baby dedications, these beautiful kids with the name or middle name Grace. And you're going to be hearing a lot of that word this morning because it's such a powerful word. And I want to encourage you this morning to not maybe dismiss the word because you've heard it so many times. Familiarity can kind of kind of breed that contempt. Ah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, I know what grace is. And I got to tell you, being a pastor and and being a follower for most of my life, I I find grace to be fresh and new every day. I was thinking of some of the ways in which people have either described or defined grace to me. And I, I come back to maybe some of these, I don't know, you could call them cliches or maybe just 
clearer ways to understand the word grace. I remember someone in the church, even before I was a pastor, they kind of had this acronym for grace that really stuck with me. I wasn't even a pastor. I didn't even learn this from another pastor. I learned this from someone like you, just someone who cared about their faith. And they said, well, you know, Ron, grace stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. And I love that. I love that reality that you can be rich in God's eyes because of what Christ has done, expending himself all the way to the point of death on the cross. Or maybe the idea of grace, maybe a way for you to think about it is, is kind of the phrase I use a lot, it's a gift, right? I mean, grace is this gift. And if it's a gift, it means you didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Even if it were your birthday and you think I'm entitled to all these gifts, grace is a gift. It's pure that way. Or maybe uh, it's the phrase, grace pays the bills. I've heard that a lot and I love that. That idea that our sin before a holy God, it creates a debt a debt that you cannot pay on your own. It can only be paid by grace. Or maybe my favorite is actually from a theologian that's meant so much to me over the years, a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. And, and he said this one time, he said that the true saint burns grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. And I just love that idea that saints burn grace like jet fuel. And this means that if you're going to have a, a proper grasp on grace then it needs to be for you more than just a one-time thing. It means it's not just this quick little write-off of, oh, pastor, I know what grace is. I received that once. You know, I said a prayer. I was at a camp. Oh, I know what that means. I got my fire insurance. I'm not, you know, I'm saved. And the idea of grace is actually the opposite. It's not a one-time. It's an always-time thing. Your life can be fueled by this grace. And that's why he gives these examples of gold that's refined. You know what happens when you refine gold? It melts, and it spreads out, and it, it kind of burns off all the impurities. Or I think about that robe. You know what a, a white garment does? It, it covers you. Have you ever tried to keep a white shirt clean? I don't even try anymore. Like, I don't even wear a white shirt. It's too hard. Or you think about this salve. You put it in your eyes, and it, it covers your vision. All of these things, gold, the garment, the salve, they cover you like God's grace. And the only way, your only hope before you stand before a holy God is to have his grace. Um, next week, we're going to look at the throne room of God. You can come back for that, and you'll see again this need for grace. The second thing he says is the way in which we can also raise our spiritual temperature. He says, so be zealous and repent. Kind of these two words, zealous and repent. I don't know. I think the word repent, I think you hear that a lot. In fact, I think the church talks about repentance quite a bit. Repentance is this idea of turning from a life of sin and moving in the direction of following God. Pastors love the word repent. We sometimes bang on the pulpit and we tell people to repent. But that's just half of the story. And it's a critical half. In fact, our mission statement at Bridgeway is all about beginning with repentance. Our mission statement is to turn spiritually hungry people into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. But if all you do is repent and all you do is turn from your sins, I think you can end up in the same place that the church in Laodicea was. They didn't make any steps forward in their faith. They had missed the part of being zealous. Let's talk about the word zealous for a moment. I think this is a word that's, I'm bringing zealous back. I said that in our little worship prayer time this morning. I'm bringing zealous back. This is the word that the church needs today. Not just this church, every church needs this word zealous. And I think we shy away from this word 
we'll dampen it down. In fact, if you use one of the Bibles in the pews, there's um, kind of a different translation. It'll call this word earnestness. Be earnest. I think it misses. I think zealous is what we need. We don't use the word zealous because it sounds like the word jealous. And we think jealousy, oh, that's a bad thing. Well, it certainly can be, but I want you to think about jealous for just a moment. See, zealous and jealous, they both kind of describe something that you love. But it really makes a difference in how you love with that jealousy. If you're jealous for yourself, your ego will get involved, and you'll be jealous of other people. We all know how that works, right? We're jealous of the person who gets the promotion. We're jealous of the person who drives the nicer car, has the nicer lawn. We become jealous of someone, of people, and that becomes a heart issue, a bad thing. But flip this around with me for a moment. What if you're jealous, and what if, differently, what if you set your love on someone else, and now you're not jealous of them, you're jealous for them. You're jealous in a way in which, again, a parent loves their child, wants to see them succeed, and you're like that way towards everyone. You're jealous for the good of someone else. You're jealous for their growth. You're jealous for their achievements. Instead of turning the love inwards in an egocentric way, it's love turned outwards. It's other-centered, and I believe when you're jealous for someone else's good, I believe it it begins to unlock this opportunity for everyone to grow in their capacity for love. Um, way back in the early 19th century, uh, zeal was a really popular word. In fact, uh, there was one pastor, one bishop, a guy by the name of J.C. Ryle, who, uh, like every sermon he preached was on zeal. And he had a really good definition, I thought, of zeal. He said, zeal is a burning desire to please God, to do his will, and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. I want to tell you this morning that if you want to raise the spiritual temperature in your life, you must be zealous for Jesus. You must look at the ways in which you can be jealous for other people, for their good, and that in every possible way you can look to give God the glory. I want to tell you this morning, write this down, be zealous for Jesus. That's the way in which you can raise the spiritual temperature in your life being zealous for Jesus, the one thing in your life is him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to just simply apply this in your life in the way in which you need to today. I want you this morning to think about the grace that Jesus has offered you, and then think about the ways in which you can carry that grace in a zealous way for his good into the whole world. If you would bow your heads, and if you would pray with me this morning. And as your heads are bowed and as your eyes are closed, I want you to think again of those, those three items, that gold that was refined in the fire, those white garments, and that spiritual self. I want you to think of those, and I want you to know that that is the pathway towards grace. I want you to also know this morning that Jesus says this is available to you. And the reason that this is available to you is because Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was stripped so that you could be clothed. Jesus was entirely impoverished so that you could be rich. And Jesus was beat, blinded, so that you could see. That's really zeal. Jesus was and is zealous for you. And this morning, I want to tell you that he stands at the door and he knocks. I want to ask you this morning, just as clearly as I know how, 
Have you let him in? Have you let Jesus into your life? I'm not asking this morning if you've gone to church. I'm not asking this morning if you grew up in a Christian home. I'm asking, have you ever invited Jesus to come into your heart? And maybe this morning, just that simple prayer, Jesus, come into my heart. He'll do that now and he'll give you life now and life eternal that begins this process of walking in grace. You can do that now. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've done that a long time ago and you're just this morning, you're just being kind of confronted with the challenge of what it means to be zealous, what it means to crank up the heat and to raise that spiritual temperature. Maybe for you that looks like being in his word or being in prayer or serving or giving generously or maybe caring for those around you. You can do that with the help of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for these words this morning. We're thankful for the ways in which you call us up to the way in which you want us to live, not lukewarm, but red hot in our faith for you. So speak deep into our souls, challenge us and comfort us, and we give you all the glory and all the honor. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast today. Check out our app or website at bridgewaycommunity.org for more messages or to take the sermon one step deeper by downloading the Sermon Discussion Guide.